Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program, the Australian Council for Defensive Government Schools. As you are well aware, we are here every Saturday without fail at 12 noon to defend and promote public education. And today is actually quite a special and interesting day. We've been promising you that we would give you an expert talking about Finnish education. And Dale has got a marvellous interview for us with a gentleman called Mr Lawrence. So later in the program, we will be playing that for you. But our press release 880 deals with the culture of entitlement in our private schools. And it's headed Culture of Entitlement, Sex and Private Schools. So we're getting into some difficult and very interesting topics because this last week we have seen uh, going on in the Canberra bubble, the ladies talking out. And today on the Dogs Program, the ladies are going to talk out. We've sent the boy up to Ballarat and we are going to run the show today. So let's get on with it. We're going to break down this patriarchy. <laughs> Just to give a quick content warning, we will be talking about some sexual abuse and sexual assault, so we will give some resources at the end of our show in case you need them. Thank you, Madeline. We've got Dale, we've got Madeline, and we've got Sol, and in the background, of course, you've got me. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been shy about coming forward about certain things. So this is the press release. In a time when women have eventually found their voice and banded together against exploitation, a lot of murky truths about private schools have surfaced. Not only have Australian parents been confronted with the systemic sexual abuse of the Catholic sector, in recent weeks the media has been awash with revelations about the actual raping of young women in coalition ministerial offices. It seems that the sense of entitlement fostered in the wealthy private schools of the nation have produced predators in the hallowed halls of power, including the High Court and Parliament itself. The courage of young women, like the Australian of the Year, Grace Tame, and Brittany Higgins in these last few weeks, have emboldened a 22-year-old former Kambala Sydney student. Her name is Chanel Contos. Sydney is awash with this news. And she started an online petition calling on people to come forward with allegations of sexual assault and demand better consent education in the schools. Now, within 24 hours, this petition started by this former Kambala student, Chanel Contos, delivered a disturbing list of allegations from respondents who said they had been sexually assaulted during high school or shortly after by young men who attended nearby Sydney private boys' schools. Most of these schools are in the eastern suburbs of Sydney or the lower north shore. Schools like Shaw Grammar and Riverview and Cranbrook and others were mentioned. So I'd like now to pass over to Madeline, who will tell you something more about what they found out. Thank you, Grandma. This article continues, 
In the same week that the national conversation was centred on sexual assault allegations of Brittany Higgins in Canberra, more than 200 young women contacted Ms Contos with personal testimonies about sexual assault they said they experienced at the hands of a peer at boys' schools. A list of testimonies published so far under the petition has anonymised both alleged victims and perpetrators. But claims that students who attended Scots College, Cranbrook, Sydney Grammar School, St Ignatius Riverview, St Joe's College, Waverley College and Shaw have been perpetrators of sexual assault. I could add there that Riverview is the alma mater of Mr Abbott and also Mr Hockney and a few other people, I think Mr Joyce as well. Very um, interesting. Uh, Cranbrook has produced the Packers and well, I, I'm not so sure about all the others. Sounds like a set of very entitled people, doesn't it? Yes, indeed. The women who wrote the testimonies identified themselves as former students of schools, including Kambala, Kinkopal Rose Bay, St Catherine's School, Ascham, Pimble Ladies College, Winona, Queenswood, Skeggs, Darlinghurst and Montessant Angelo Mercy College. The testimonies detail alleged assaults that took place during school years or shortly afterwards, while the young women were still mixing in crowds determined by their school social circles. One former eastern suburb school student recalled countless instances of boys differing in age at a number of private schools with stories of both sexually harassing and assaulting women. Quote, looking back, the way it's bragged about amongst peers is also extremely frightening, he said, noting that reflecting on his time at the school had made him feel guilty. You hear constant stories and I was super afraid to speak against it. Other students said some of their peers had kept lists of women they had slept with while drunk or shared nude images of female peers on all boys' group chats. While I never assaulted anyone, I felt the environment had changed me negatively into someone I was not, another former student said. I guess it would be really confronting to be in that environment and not be educated in a way that is positive towards consent, which is what we're really talking about here, it's consent. According to Natasha Kunsanthos in the Sydney Morning Herald of 21st of February 2021, the 3,000 students who have signed Ms Contos' petition are calling for schools to do more and earlier, which I totally agree with. Absolutely. Consent should be taught from a really young age. Consent doesn't always relate to sexual activity. Consent relates to whether or not you want to give someone a hug. Also, as most people of our age or anyone who's gone through the school system would know, you don't learn about sex and consent until after a lot of people have actually had sex. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to start teaching these things before they become an issue. Absolutely, nip it in the bud. The scariest thing for me was we went around in these circles and said, how many of you understand what the word consent means? This is relating to female student visiting Cranbrook after a male student had been involved in a sexual assault to teach about 100 male students about respect for women. So the question was asked, how many of you understand what the word consent means? Of the 100 boys, she said maybe five of them put their hand up. I don't really think that young women should have been in charge of having to talk to young men. Another former Kambala student described the situation as absurd. 
We weren't equipped at all. We barely knew what we were talking about, she said. Her mother then said, we have heard some horrific stories about the behaviour of boys and I was appalled by the inaction of the schools and equally appalled that they were using our daughters to do their job. I think she's right there. And just think about it. Instead of the schools themselves doing the job after the horse had bolted and a boy had sexually abused a girl, the girls themselves from that school were then asked to go and teach the boys. I, I Which find is that ridiculous. That is emotional labour yeah. that these women should not be having to do by themselves. Yeah. I do think that this needs to be a three-pronged approach. I think that consent needs to be taught, A, from a young age, obviously with different intentions across the age groups, but the teachers need to be educated on how to teach consent education. The teachers need to be educating the students on consent, but also, Sol and I were talking about this before, we think that the parents also need to be on board with that education so that it is an all-encompassing education. Yeah, during just a small amount of research, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare posted a study in uh, 2020 that showed in 2017 and 2018 one third of victims of sexual assault where the assault resulted in hospitalization, the assault was actually perpetrated by a spouse or domestic partner. So it seems teaching the students is not enough when they are learning these norms at home. Absolutely. In fact, like maybe we should be bringing in the parents yes. and teaching, having consent classes for the parents as well. Absolutely. It's one thing to teach the future of our world, meaning the children, but if you can't mend and heal what is going on at home and around them in society, how are these kids going to understand what consent really means? I think an important point to make is that some of these issues were to be included in the umbrella of the Safe Schools Program, but that got nixed because of its addressing issues around cis and trans and non-binary gender issues. And I think that reflects very much the mainstream male privilege that dominates our culture in Australia and worldwide. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, what happened, what happened in Sydney was that the principals moved very quickly. Once this hit the press, their job, of course, is damage control. And they bemoaned the fact, they said, and perhaps people might agree with this, it's a difficult culture to break. Yes. And they fell back on marketing the schools uh, for the courses that they're running and the, the speakers they're inviting into their schools. But, in fact, they had invited some of the girls from one of the schools that was under attack, if you like, uh, to try to teach. I, I find it all very, actually, it's very sad. It is. The problem is much more deep-seated than marketing trips and visiting speakers talking about respect. Dogs, our our position is the only way to approach damage control is to go to the root of the privileged culture bred by the segregation of boys and girls in high-fee, highly government-subsidised private schools where the culture embedded in the lavish buildings and playing fields is one of entitlement. The boys think that they are entitled in the way the old Roman senators and others thought they were entitled to sexual favours from their slaves. 
and also the, the uh, people in the Confederacy of America thought that their slaves were their own. Oh, they owned them. It actually gets back to how you treat other human beings. Absolutely. It's very basic. It's a very clear pathway at the moment from what we're seeing in the media because these private schools are obviously breeding liberal voters and these liberal voters are becoming liberal politicians. And if you don't have the right mentality surrounding respect and consent, who are children going to look up to? Yeah, and how are you going to create laws that reinforce a culture of consent if you have people that not actively bemoan consent? In mm-hmm, fact, mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. charge of the country. Mm-hmm. Well, dogs have got a very, a very, very straightforward proposition for all of this. Any school for self-styled, entitled children of plutocrats that has produced sexual predators should be deregistered and no longer receive a cent of public money. Yes! Yes! So we'll have a bit of a break and then we'll let these uh, young ladies take over. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Well, before the break, we've been talking about what's been going on in Sydney where 3,000 young women answered a petition that was set up by an ex-Kambala schoolgirl, a very wealthy private school. And we had uh, our ladies commenting on this, but now they are going to put their minds to the question, is what is going on in Sydney peculiar to Sydney? It's eastern suburbs and lower North Shore. Or is it also like this in Melbourne? I think this issue is a worldwide issue. I think it is definitely an issue in Australian schools and there needs to be a complete overhaul of our school sexual education and consent education and even our emotional intelligence education. There needs to be a complete overhaul of the whole curriculum. We need to be celebrating and respecting differences and diversities in individuals and communities and we need to focus on not just biology but relationships, pleasure and consent. How do you feel about that, Sarah? Yeah, 100%, I agree. I don't think we, as mentioned before, I don't think we should be teaching these things, as Jean said, after the horse has bolted. I think teaching things like consent from the very start of school about what is and isn't okay, and also it comes into the whole education system in general, it has to be rewritten. There's so many ways in which we force kids to do things that they don't want to do, and it doesn't teach kids good lessons about boundaries. And it makes sense as to why kids don't have a good grasp of boundaries or consent, because we're not teaching them that their boundaries are valid. Mm-hmm. Look, I'll just add, I agree with you, and it's really obvious that the issues are bigger than just entitled schoolyards. When you have women like Amanda Vanstone, 
responding in an article that she wrote that was basically slut-shaming and victim-blaming the girls who saying mm-hmm. that they were at fault. And when you've got a woman who was in a position of power in Parliament writing an article like that in a mainstream media outlet, uh, it just goes to show how endemic it is, how systemic it is, how mm-hmm. ingrained it is, and just what we're up against. Well, the first thing I do in the in the parliamentary situation is laying down a rule that Parliament House and its environment should be a dry environment. There should be no alcohol <laughs> because a lot of the problems are also fueled by alcohol and drugs. It's a slippery slope, though, because you would think that we're talking about adults and adults should be able to show, especially elected officials, should be able to show a a modicum of respect for Mm -hmm. each other. And these are the kind of rules that we would put on children. And it's sad to think that, yeah, our parliamentarians need to have childish rules imposed on them over some of the most basic human rights issues. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I'm guessing, because what I was taught in sexual education in school was how to put a condom on a banana. (laughs) That is not not sexual education. It should be all-encompassing. I don't understand. It's a lot more than I got down. (laughs) (laughs) What was sexual education like back then? Was there any? I think you you mentioned biology. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just how pregnancy works. No, we had a biology lesson. Oh, wow. Okay, so the anatomy. I think what Dale brought up before about the Safe Schools program as well is really pertinent because of what you were saying about uh, trans education Mm -hmm. because trans women are more likely to be sexually assaulted as well. And what Maddie was saying about diversity, you have all these other elements. We're mainly talking about in general, but then you have certain sections of society who are much more likely to experience sexual assault already. Absolutely, and I feel like the Safe Schools program was going to encompass these things and was going to help the children and our future, but I still don't, well, I guess I do understand why it was knocked back. I just think it's absolutely ridiculous. Well, it shows um, how, how ingrained these, these attitudes are. And did you know the current curriculum stops mandatory lessons, stops sexual education after year 10? So that year 11s and 12s can focus on exams or vocational education. That is an integral age for sexual education and consent to be taught. Not that, you know, all ages, it's, it's not. I just, statistically, when people start engaging in sexual behavior, it's around those ages. So you would think that they would be backing that up in school. Absolutely. But what we're actually talking about, over and above the the sex business is mating procedures, and the idea <laughs> there there are there are certain rules that apply to some girls and other rules that apply to others. That in fact, in the class structures like we have, there were some girls who were marriage material, and other girls who were usually called fair game. I don't know whether this still applies, particularly in these private school areas. But there was always girls or ladies who were regarded as fair game and were not spoken about with respect at any time. And I I find this very sad. I I really do. That's also from a culture where you had to be ashamed if you were the one raped. No one reported Mm. rape because that was Mm, always... And the victim was blamed. And that culture, while we're slowly moving out of it, 
as Vanstone's article proves, even women haven't moved beyond that headset yet. Yeah, absolutely. And I think consent, it's, it's not just relevant to sex. It relates to permission and respect for ourselves and others. You know, everybody should be comfortable with what they're engaging in. If you see someone, just for example, in an uncomfortable situation, check in with them because they might be traumatised in a way that silences them in that situation. But I feel like if we have these consent classes, then hopefully those people would, would feel confident enough to actually stand up for themselves. Not that they should be standing up for themselves, you know, they can, but, I, you know, if it was an education, the attacker wouldn't be doing that in the first place. Yeah. I think education can help work against the bystander effect, which is kind of like what we were seeing with that boy who was saying, I didn't commit any assaults, but I didn't feel comfortable speaking up about the culture. Like, we teach kids how to say no to drugs, for example, but we should be teaching kids more about how they can speak up, especially young boys how they can speak up in their peer groups Mm -hmm. when a friend brings something up that is contributing to this culture, what they can say, how they can, you know, tell their friend, maybe we don't say stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, So what the uh, principals of these schools were saying was that it was a very, very firmly embedded culture, which they really felt that they couldn't do very much about. You know, my question is, if it's like this in Sydney, and I grew up in Sydney, I know it was like this in Sydney. It's always been like this in Sydney. Is it like in Melbourne, in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, with these uh, wealthy, entitled children? Because I didn't grow up in Melbourne. No, neither did I. Well, I did. What was it like up in Queensland? Eh? Well, this was in the 80s, and just when we were talking about sex education, I went to a public school, and I have praise for the school itself, but when it came to sex education... They got the year 11 and year 12, so the senior classes, together in the same room and used one of the sex education classes to talk about homosexuality. And this is in 1988. And they told us children to physically get up, go and stand at that end of the room if you think it's okay for people to be homosexual. And if you don't think it's okay go and stand at that end of the room. And if you're not sure if it's okay for people to be gay, stand in the middle. I was the only child (gasps) up at the it's okay end. How did they respond to that? How did your teachers respond to that? to you. Well, this is the thing. You know, I was othered for the rest of my schooling. I was that girl. I was that dyke. I was that any number of names that they derogatorily call people who were gay, even though like, at the time I didn't identify as gay. But um, mm. I certainly knew that no one had a right to tell me who I could love and who I could not love. Absolutely. But, um, yeah, that's that was how it was in the 80s in Queensland. It's, I mean, it's like what we're talking about, like it's kind of moved on, but it kind of has it. Like we had a national survey about whether gay people should be allowed to get married. Exactly. My experience of Brisbane in the 1960s was that there was a a real terrible anti-gay propaganda, really, which was run by a DLP lady. Yeah, she was an NCC DLP. Mm. And yet there was all this talk and moralising about sex. But under the surface, it was one of the most hypocritical places, much more so than Sydney, uh, and the VD rate was the highest in Australia. Mm. 
That's B.O.K. Peterson's Queensland. Somehow this level of hypocrisy I, I found quite extraordinary mm. because um, when you're actually dealing with sexually transmitted diseases, you do want to have it as a health problem, not as a sex or a moral problem. That's right. As they discovered in the 1980s with the AIDS epidemic. And um, in many ways, we're very uh, much indebted to the people who suffered in the AIDS epidemic because it's enabled us to develop autoimmune drugs and also enabled us to get our vaccines within a very short time for this uh, COVID matter. So I think to separate health problems from moral problems. Exactly, yeah. And it also started the conversation around other gender identities and Mm -hmm. um, heteronormativity that pervades Mm -hmm. this world. I think, like, the the handling of the AIDS epidemic, you can see the true roots. You can see the way the country that did education in Australia running ads, like, Mm -hmm. about sexual health Mm -hmm. and how to handle the pandemic. They were very moralistic ads, though. And then you have America. Yeah, was did the abstinence and they didn't teach anyone anything, which, I mean, now we know was on purpose by the administration. Mm. And America suffered greatly and Australia did quite well. We tend to be pragmatic, don't we? Unfortunately, unfortunately, yes. Well, I feel like um, through chaos, we do find order. And I I do think that having these issues brought to light, like what's happening in Canberra, will help us hopefully find order eventually. I think we're we're still finding it, and I, I hope we get there. Yes, I think it should be said, for example, that um, it has come out and it's in the press. Whereas back in the in the fifties and sixties, it was just well known, for example, that Mr. Menzies had had a had a lady on his side, and his wife was up there in Bathurst. Everybody knew this, but it was there was a censorship there. There was oh. no talk about mm. it at all. So, um, well, thank you very much for the, for a very interesting discussion indeed. We've definitely been fired up. I think it's a really important discussion to have, and we thank you all for listening. And do you have some numbers that you'd like to share in case this has brought up any issues for people? I absolutely do. We have um, Lifeline. If if um, you've been affected by today's conversation, please don't um, hesitate to call Lifeline on 131114 or for um, confidential information, counselling and support on sexual assault, domestic or family violence and abuse, please call one eight hundred seven three seven seven three two. That's one eight hundred seven three seven seven three two. So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.
Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. And now for something completely different. Uh, Last week I was lucky enough to talk to Michael Lawrence, who is the author of Testing 321, What Australian Education Can Learn from Finland. And uh, we had a great discussion about some of the issues that he raises in that book. And if anyone's interested in finding out more about Michael uh, or more about... um, what Australian can, education can learn from Finland, you can go to micklawrence.com. That's M-I-C-K-L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E.com or the Facebook group, which is titled What Australian Education Can Learn from Finland. But now here's part one of our chat with Mick Lawrence. Good afternoon. You're listening to the Dogs Program on 3CR 855 on the AM dial, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. We're lucky enough to have with us today teacher and author Mick Lawrence. Welcome to the Dogs, Mick. Thanks, thanks for having me here. Thank you very much for joining us. Mick's written a book that I think the Dogs listeners will find very interesting. It's called Testing 321, What Australian Education Can Learn from Finland. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what prompted you to examine the Australian system in relation to the Finnish system? Well, I've been teaching for 30 years and had a good friend who I'd met through music, not through education, in Finland. And he he was a big Australian music fan. And I'd done a couple of books on Australian music. And we got chatting a few times and he suggested, why don't you come over to Finland? He said, I work in education there and I can, can get you into some schools and so on. And you can have a look at that. And I thought, oh, that might be an interesting thing to do. And when I did a bit of looking into education in Australia, one of the headlines that stood out for me a lot was, was that one that says that more than half Australian teachers quit the profession within the first five years. And I thought, that's just, you know, an extraordinary thing. And I thought, well, that's something to think about when I go over to Finland. So over I went to Finland. This was at about 2016, I think, that I, I first went there. What my friend's job was, he worked for, for the education board over there in IT, but he's also previously a teacher himself. So he was in a really good position to be able to get me to meet anyone that I really needed to, you know, get into schools and so on. Apparently it costs over a thousand euros a day to get into schools there because there's just a huge education tourism boom that's started over there in the last decade or two. Okay, it costs the tourists to go to the schools. Yeah, Yeah, there's a huge demand, as you can imagine, of people wanting to come in and just find out what makes Finnish education tick, what's their secret and so on. So anyway, one of the first groups of people that I met was a couple of teacher educators, people who work at one of the teaching universities, and they were interesting. One of the things in Finland is that the educators and teachers know about education worldwide, basically. And one of the things they asked me was, they said, are all your students the same? And I said, well, well, no. And they said, well, why do you teach them all the same thing as in the standardised curriculum? And the guy had no real answer to this. At that point, like most Australian teachers, I just accepted these changes as they came in in the previous couple of decades. And 
assumed that there was a large wealth of research and so on to back them up. You sort of place your trust in the authorities that say to you, we're going to standardise the curriculum, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I did that, but one of them had heard about NAPLAN and they asked me about that. And when I told them that it was given to, to students in grades three, five, seven and nine here, and they asked what grade three was because grade three is a different, you know, level to, to theirs there. And I said, well, they're about eight years old. And when I'd explained that it was a couple of days of intensive testing, they just looked at me like I was a child molester and said, why are you, why are Australian teachers allowing that to happen to their children? And I was, I guess I was taken aback a little because I realized I thought, yeah, um, Good point. It's it's pretty hard to um, dispute that 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 can't be a good thing for for the children at all. And yet in Australia there is no discussion. It's just not an option for teachers to say, look, I don't think some of my students should be doing this. And yet these teachers are the first ones to be blamed if the results of the NAT plan tests aren't what people think they should be. So there was it was these kind of things that led me to think, hang on, there's something going on here. And I, I sort of promised myself, I said, right, when I get back to Australia, I'm going to do a bit of research and try and find out what the answer is for this standardisation and that plan and all that. Because I'm getting back to that discussion with those teacher educators. They then asked, well, well does it work? Is, is that plan working? And I said, well, well, no, not really. Like you, I can't remember a year when they've announced wonderful NAPLAN results and said everything's going great. Well, they then said, why do you keep doing it? And I couldn't answer that one either. And also, what do we do with the results of NAPLAN? That was one of the questions the Finnish teacher said. He said he thought he understood what I was talking about. He said, oh, I see. So NAPLAN is used to to pinpoint schools or students that have got learning difficulties and problems so that they can send extra funding and assistance to them. And I thought, well, that would be a very honourable and sensible thing to do with it. But I had to explain that that's not quite the case. This is where I, I realised I was going to have to ask some serious questions when I came back home again. Because when you then tell them, well, actually, no, we don't do that at all. As a matter of fact, we try and name and shame those schools and those students by publishing their results. And, and then the goal is rather than giving that school any extra funding or that student any extra help, we encourage them to go to another school where perhaps NAPLAN results are a little bit better, which works nicely if your parents are, are well enough off that they can drive you to another school each day because hopefully you're going to you know, a school that's reasonably close to home. But if your parents aren't in that position to be able to take you to another school that's got better NAPLAN results, you sit back there and stew in your juices along with the other students whose parents can't afford to do the same for them. And it's quite likely that some of the better teachers in your school, now that as the student numbers drop, the better teachers are going to leave first because they're the ones that have got the best chance of getting employment elsewhere. So you're kind of then leaving a pool of, of the worst performing students on that playing test with teachers who aren't ladder climbers and aren't, aren't, you know, going elsewhere in a school that's probably underfunded and got socioeconomic issues, et cetera, et cetera. And how is that supposed to bring about any improvement whatsoever? Yeah, so I, I visited a few more schools and so on. And one of the things that shocked me about their system there was it was like an educational nirvana. There were these students that were totally occupied in what they were doing. I remember at one point my friend took me to a, a classroom and he said, look, grab a seat here. The teacher will be here pretty soon. I sat there for about 20 minutes. 
I believed I was sitting outside an empty classroom, but the teacher showed up. We went in. The classroom was full of students. They were about year nine age in, in our um, system. You know, so what, about 15 or so? And I, first of all, thought, hang on, how come I didn't, wasn't hearing any noises? But anyway, I, I asked him what he was teaching in history. And I said, what, what era are we doing here? And he said, from creation to now. And I asked for an explanation on this because it was an unusual answer. And he said, well, for many of those students, it might be the last time they do history, and we want to make sure that they enjoy it and continue to have an interest in history for the rest of their lives. A response that, that totally floored me because you just would never get that sort of thinking in Australia. It just doesn't exist whatsoever. So each student, you know, was basically negotiating with the teacher. So one of them might have said, look, I'm really interested in the in the Roman era, some of the practices the Romans did, but they would negotiate with the teacher a particular thing and do research and work on that. And, you know, they might agree with the teacher that, hey, well, let's do an investigation into this, that or the other, you know, whatever Roman um, fighting or something, you know, Roman gladiators might be their interest and, you know, find out what it takes to be a gladiator and but they were all totally involved in this to the point where even when there wasn't a teacher in the classroom, they just worked away completely silently. And, and I found this right across all the schools I went to was students that were totally absorbed in what they were doing. And this was exemplified when late last, late last year, I asked one of my teacher colleagues over in Finland how they'd been going with the remote learning stuff, which has been a huge factor in Australia in the last year or so too. And the response was, was well, she said, well, the, the students are, are really determined to not let it affect what they're doing. They don't want to slow down the work that they're doing. And it just, you know, once again, in Australia, the answer to that question was that a lot of the students were, were using it as an opportunity to be able to get out of the work they were doing and avoid the work that they were doing. And it was this complete turnaround in, the, in that student attitude that I found really interesting. The students and the teachers were on the same side. The respect for teachers was just enormous. And there's a lot of contributors to that situation. When someone says, what is the situation with Finnish education? There is no one situation because Finnish teachers are given a huge amount of autonomy in how they teach and how they work and what curriculum they do and so on. And it would be considered offensive to them for someone to go in to their classroom and, you know, trying to monitor what they were doing, you know, from the, from the point of view of, you know, an inspector or something, checking out what they were doing, just like it would be considered inappropriate for someone to do that to, say, a doctor or someone here. Teachers have a huge status within the community in Finland, and it's, it's one of the most desired career paths for teenagers. They're up there with medicine and law and so on is teaching. It, it's, and it's in one of the top couple of uh, selections for university places and so on, even though only a small number of them get in because so many of them want to do it. It's almost a reversal. The students owning their, owning their studies, their education, and taking responsibility for it. It's one of the things that is just completely missing in Australia. And the more that we standardise education in Australia, the more that we disempower teachers and so on, the less that students take responsibility and ownership of their own educations, I think. And it's one of the, the reasons why we've been going backwards so much and one of the reasons why Finland's been able to stay near the top of the table for the last couple of decades is because they've continued to, to give teachers autonomy and power and the teachers have therefore been able to give students some autonomy and so on. It just makes a huge difference. You might say, well, how can 
Australian teachers do that. I, I spent the last couple of years looking at how could I try and implement some of this stuff in Australian classrooms where you've still got all this standardised curriculum and so on. And, you know, for instance, at year eight levels, Australian curriculum says that students have to study the Middle Ages. So one of the, well, I tried a thing there with my students and I would get a, a, a video, say, of the Middle Ages, maybe a 15, 20 minute sort of general overview of the Middle Ages and say to the students, watch this. And at the end of it, I want you to give me some questions about things in the Middle Ages that you find fascinating or interesting. And so they'd watch it. And then at the end of it, I'd get get a couple of questions off each person and put the good the good ones on the board. The good ones being the ones that I you know, didn't have one word answers or so on, obviously, because you you can answer those quickly. <laughs> but um, I put those on the board, and then we then I could actually say to the students, okay, let's get people into groups here. Who'd like to look at the Black Death because it's one of the ones up on the board? And the students could then go into a, a, a group situation working on a topic that they had chosen for themselves and were interested in. And uh, I put everyone, everyone would get into those groups and off they'd go and do their research. And immediately from that moment on, you'd, you'd notice a real difference in the classroom because they were working on stuff that they were interested in. And when they came back and uh, did their presentations to the class, the presentations were a lot better than I would have got through any other means because they were presenting stuff that they liked, that they were invested in. And so the students themselves got a better presentation from their classmates than they probably would have got had we done it any other way, had I read from a book or uh, had I, you know, had other activities that were led by me. Suddenly they had some control over things. And, yeah, that activity went really, really well. And all it is is giving students some agency, some control over what they're doing. But the the results in the room were, were very much noticeable and students later on told me how much they enjoyed that. And that's kind of, a, I guess it's a, a tiny little example of, of what Finland is doing on a much, much greater scale. There was a student I had a few years back. I was teaching English to year eights once again. And at the start of the year, one of the, one of the students, really nice kid, comes up to me and says, oh, how you going, Mr. Lawrence? I hate English. You know, I'm no good at it. I can't stand it, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, oh, look, yeah, okay. Thanks for telling me anyway. But I found out within the first few weeks that he was obsessed with fishing. And most weekends he'd be out fishing on the pier or somewhere in Port Phillip Bay. And so I would on a Monday say to him, hey, you know, how's the, uh, how'd you go on the weekend? And he's, oh, yeah, he did this, that, caught the issues, that, the tides were doing. And it quickly became obvious that he was really, really smart. He understood the tides. He understood different species of fish. He understood the connections between how the tides were going to affect the fishing, all sorts of stuff. And I quickly realised that if I'd have been able to get him to write an essay about how to catch a fish in Port Phillip Bay, I'd have probably got a really good piece of work from him. But I had to teach him Shakespeare or whatever novel it was that we were doing. And once again, he was disengaged from that. But it, it quickly became obvious to me that had he had teachers who, since he was seven years of age, which is when they start school in Finland, had since he was seven years of age had teachers who had been able to let him write about things that he was passionate about and interested in, he would have written about those things with great care and great passion and made sure that the words were good and that the punctuation was right and so on and that the detail was there. And probably by the time he got to a year eight, he would never have thought, I'm not good at English, because he'd have enjoyed English and done it well. 
And someone might say, well, hey, but, you know, they can't just write about the stuff they want to write about. But he's going to be a lot more open to learning Shakespeare or something if he doesn't think I'm no good at English and hates English. Mm. So this is kind of, in a nutshell, one small example of how it works over there in Finland and how the students have this ownership of what they're, they're doing and what they're learning. There's a lot of sort of myths about Finnish education. A lot of people think, oh, they just let the students, you know, do what they want or whatever. I've never seen schools where the students were so polite, so well-behaved, to use that word, and so involved in what they're doing. You know, there, there's no rowdiness or whatever because when you're doing something you're totally absorbed in, you're not going to be rowdy or, or noisy or whatever. You know, it doesn't work like that. When you talk about how flexible the teachers are able to be, say, for example, the history lessons, that comes from the wealth of information the teachers have because they all need to have master's degrees to be a teacher. So if you teach history, then you are an historian. Yeah, the, the teachers are all exceptional, but like in that example I gave you, so much of the teaching isn't teacher-led or directed. It's that ability, ability to be able to have the students involved in things that they're passionate about as much as possible that is where the intelligence and smarts of the teacher really come into it. It's not so much standing, being able to stand up there and lecture. You, know, you don't need a master's degree to be able to stand up there and lecture, I don't think. I think it was the New South Wales Minister for Education who had a big rant just a couple of days back I saw in the newspapers where she was saying that we should be questioning teachers more. And you would never hear of anything like that in Finland because teachers are seen as community leaders there. And the respect for them is up there with doctors and the like. And students are well aware of this. And every time that a politician or, or someone like that questions teachers or uh, criticises teachers, etc., or, you know, NAPLAN results come out and they say, what are teachers doing in Australian classrooms, etc., uh, parents and students take note of that and and their, their relationship with teachers is affected immensely. And in in Finland, that doesn't exist. I guess it's it's like you know in Australia, if how you speak to your doctor, you're going to be very respectful to your doctor, and you certainly wouldn't argue with them or um, suggest that what they were saying to you was incorrect or whatever. And teaching is very much like that in Finland. And I think when people say, "Oh, but you know you've got to set teachers straight," or Australian teachers aren't up, you know, you hear this this sort of rhetoric all the time, and in my experience, I've rarely met teachers that weren't exceptional professionals. Very, very rare. And it's it's just basically giving them that respect. And one of the things that we do do here, by standardising everything as, as we tend to do, it becomes a disincentive for teachers to, one, improve their qualifications, I suppose, if you want to talk about master's degrees, uh, but, but two, to, for them to be exploring and finding out and increasing their knowledge of education and edu- education pedagogy and methodology and all those those words like that, because anybody, and I've seen this in schools, they've got the lessons for the week right down to the day. So on Tuesday, you're going to be teaching this and you'll teach it this way and so on. Anybody can teach that like that. It's all there. There, there isn't any skill required or whatever to do that. There's skill required to try and make it interesting perhaps, but, that's not considered an important part of it. In the last 10 or 20 years of my teaching career, I can't recall a faculty meeting where 
somebody said, hey, will the students enjoy this? Will they be enthusiastic about it? Will it, you know, will it make them enjoy history or will it make them enjoy English more or whatever? Those things don't come into it in Australia because we're so busy standardising it. You'll hear the phrase, so we're all on the same page. You'll hear that a million times. And they think that if the school has got everybody teaching the same lesson on the same day at the same time, uh, they think that's a professionally run school. Everything's good. And there's somehow the assumption is made that if everyone is teaching, you know, fractions on Tuesday, uh, that therefore this is going to lead to to good marks and grades. And they get a real shock at the end of each year when that doesn't materialise. And they say, look, it's probably because Jenny down the hall there, she did something different that day. I heard about it, you know, and, and that person gets blamed. Whereas in Finland, one of the great phrases I, I saw on teacher education was they said, the student-teacher uh, in training is encouraged to learn best practice and then to try and improve on it, then to come up with their own way that is even better. Whereas in Australia, no one is asking if what they're doing is best practice. You've got to do what everyone else is doing. End of story. There's a great story in the book about a primary school teacher. I changed her name for the book because the, a lot of the, the students in the class could have been possibly recognised and we didn't want that to happen. Sure. But she was one of these teachers who, since she'd been five or ten years of age, had wanted to teach and used to play teaching games with her siblings. And she was very musical, gifted, you know, could play a number of different musical instruments. And as they do in prep and so on, you'd do all those things where you'd learn the alphabet as a big song. And she got told, you can't sit down with the students and, and do alphabet songs and other songs like that because the other grade prep teachers don't play the guitar. And so essentially throughout her school, the teaching was being dumbed down to what the ability of the, the least talented teacher had because that teacher wasn't able to do what the other ones were doing. And it was more important for everyone in the school to be doing the same thing rather than any interest in what are they doing. So she was no longer able to do that. And she told me, she said, oh, when, when the other classes were out doing something else, occasionally I'd slip in a song because the kids really loved it. But you'd remember that. The alphabet had a tune and you sang it. That's how you learnt it. And there were so many things like that that you do in a prep classroom like that. And so I've taught music to grade preps and they just love songs and so it comes naturally to them. Uh, they can't get enough of it and their brains are connected to it and there's no better way for them to learn the alphabet than as a song. And you know, to this day, there must be an enormous number of people out there when you ask them something about the alphabet, they reel off that little tune. You know, ABC, it's a little song, isn't it? Mm. Anyway, but that, that's where standardisation has taken us to in this country. And she was devastated, though, because to me she said that was the thing that I felt differentiated me from most other teachers was that I could, could do this musical thing and it was a special thing and I was told not to use it anymore. And I just think what a, a sad loss that was. But her stories in the book, as well as a number of other stories, which, which are there to sort of illustrate some of these points, because one of the things that that standardisation thing does is by taking away all agency and all control that the students have over what they're doing. It's it's a bit like you will do what we've told you to do and you'll do it this way and that's that. And when you get told things like that, it becomes more like a chore than um, than anything else. Whereas if someone says to you, hey, hey Dale, how about you do a, a radio show on, on something you've got a real interest in, you're passionate about, you're going to spend a lot of time working on that one. Mm. And the other one that you've been told that you have to do, you're going to sort of, get that one out of the way as quickly as you can. And that's kind of what we're doing to, to our students in this country. And we're, we're almost, if you think about it, indoctrinating them 
to believing that education is a chore and the mark is the only thing that matters at the end because you see all the at the end of the year when all the VCE grades come out and all this kind of thing, all the ATAR scores, it's only the number that gets talked about. No one ever says to them, hey, what did you learn or what have you been learning about or what do you what do you hope to do with all these things you've learned here? What's been the most amazing thing you've learned? You never hear that sort of question asked. It's just, what was your number? And anyone who's got a 99.8 or 99.9 or something, we, we throw a party about that. But in Finland, I, I got asked the question, why are you, why are you Australians so obsessed with, with marks and assessment? And I'd never thought about it before, but it, it's true. In teacher meetings, they'll spend ages talking about the assessment task. And there's a, there's a great quote from, I think it's, it's Parsi Salberg, where he says, testing is a great servant, but a poor master. And it, it's, it's a very, very insightful comment, I think. I think we've turned it into the master here in Australia. What we teach is what gets tested, and what gets tested is what's easy to teach, easy to measure, if you think about it. So creating things are out the window. If you're an English faculty, don't do poetry and so on, because it's really hard to put them into tests and so on, isn't it? They're really hard to grasp. So we chuck them out, and anything like that, when I can recall when I was younger, I really enjoyed English because it was a creative subject, but it's not anymore. All the creative aspects have been thrown out because they're not on the VCE. They're not in NAPLAN because NAPLAN avoids things like that. For the same reason that the creative subjects, the arts full stop, aren't on NAPLAN. Therefore, there's hundreds of primary schools in Victoria no longer have a music or an art teacher because the message they've been given is that those subjects aren't important. So we're not going to measure the outcomes of them because we don't really care about those outcomes. So how is the school supposed to interpret that? Well, the school knows that they get judged on their NAPLAN marks and therefore they think, well, let's not spend any money on music or the arts because they're not in NAPLAN. And that was a short piece of our discussion with Mick Lawrence. Uh, We do go on to talk about some of the professional development series that is organised with a university in Finland for all teachers in Australia to take part in. So if you're interested in finding out more about the professional development sessions with uh, Mick Lawrence and Tampere University, uh, you can go to micklawrence.com. That's M-I-C-K-L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E. Or go to the Facebook group, What Australian Education Can Learn From Finland, uh, and find out some more about the professional education sessions that all teachers are invited to take part in. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit. Our education is not for profit. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, our time has gone very quickly this afternoon and uh, we hope you've enjoyed this session with us. If you've been affected by today's conversation, please don't hesitate to call Lifeline on 131114. 
or for um, confidential information, counselling and support on sexual assault, domestic or family violence and abuse, please call 1-800-737-732. That's 1-800-737-732. And um, it's time for us to say goodbye. But first we'll tell you that you can always go to find out more about us at www.adults.info. So from the Dogs Program, it's bye for now. Bye. Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.